This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Recently, we hosted an interview with Oak Tree Capital Management co-founder and co-chairman Howard Marks. In that conversation, he noted in his letter to investors, he thought there was a possibility that globalization could be compromised because of the war in Ukraine. That idea was also brought forward by BlackRock chief Larry Fink and also economist and New York Times opinion columnist Paul Krugman. Ezekiel Hernandez is management professor at the Wharton School. He joins us to give a counter-belief that maybe, just maybe, globalization is not going to come to an end. Zeke, great to talk to you again. How, how are you doing? Good, Dan. Thank you. Good to be with you again. So y- you believe in the counter-argument that uh, globalization is not going to be significantly impacted. Tell us why. Well, I believe that there could be some short-term disruptions, but Fundamentally, no, I don't believe that globalization in the medium to long run is going to completely be obliterated, which I think is the spirit of a lot of these predictions. I think there's many reasons why, but uh, let me begin with this. I think that the economic fundamentals, the need for international trade, uh, for international exchange, uh, haven't changed um, because of uh, wars between, say, a pair of countries or other disruptions. Uh, it would take a, a truly global-scale world war uh, uh, for many, many years to undo the economic fundamentals that lead to globalization. You say this isn't the first time that these types of predictions have come forward, that there have been naysayers in the past, correct? Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time. It's fashionable to do, right? When the COVID pandemic began, The Economist had a cover story uh, that literally was titled The End of Globalization. And uh, within about 12 months, globalization had rebounded right back to where it was in terms of trade, foreign direct investment, et cetera. It happened uh, during the 2008 financial crisis. And, you know, again, there were temporary blips that lasted several months to about a year, but we went right back to where we were. And that's just because like I said, there are some economic fundamentals whereby uh, countries, but also companies, uh, need uh, foreign markets, whether it's to reduce costs, whether it's to get customers, whether it's to get talent. And those things don't change. And so I think we have to distinguish between short-term disruptions and structural changes in the economy, which haven't fundamentally changed. You had done an, an article reacting to this, and, and one of the things you mentioned in that piece was that this level of globalization that has been talked about for so long may not have been as big as a lot of people thought, and that also there's an element of regionalization with a lot of these companies as well. Yeah, that's right. And I think another reason why these these predictions of the end of globalization are overblown is that the world never was as globalized, I think, as, as people think. Uh, Pankaj Gamawat, who, who is a professor at NYU, is well known for uh, showing that people overestimate the extent to which the world is globalized. I think that this came out of the excitement sort of in the post-Soviet era in the early 90s that there was uh, sort of an uptick in international collaboration and, and a sense that we had converged on this sort of capitalist model. And everyone thought, OK, there's no barriers. You know, famous books like The World is Flat came out. And uh, but, you know, the reality is that 
um, even at the peak of foreign direct investment, it only represented about 4% of the global economy, right? If you think of something like global tourism, it's only about 10% of all tourism in the world. And so um, most economic activity happens within countries or at most within regions, so within North America, within Asia. Um, I give an example in my article of South Korean multinational firms, which are kind of often seen as the poster child of the benefits of globalization, firms like Samsung or Kia or Hyundai. Uh, but, you know, if you look at where the vast, vast majority of their activity is, it's within Southeast Asia, very close to their country. And then, yes, they do have meaningful activity in North America or in Europe, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, less than about 15 to 10 percent of their activity. And so there still is like a localized force that is much stronger than truly globalized business. You also mentioned that, that there are instances around the globe where the type of government that is in power in a particular country may also be playing a role in this. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for example, if we take the current war in, in, in the invasion of Ukraine by, uh, by Russia, uh, a lot of what Putin does has, has clearly uh, and swiftly disconnected Russia from global markets. And so if you have protectionist authoritarian regimes, often in the in the interest of national security or other imperatives, they will do things to shut themselves off um, from global markets. And of course, that will reduce the level of exposure of that economy to the world. But um, uh, we have to also think about what firms do, right? Firms they will respond by shifting their production or their activities to other parts of the world. And so, yes, governments will affect their own individual exposure to globalization. But yeah. unless you have like authoritarianism and protectionism rise to a level where every country wants to become economically self-sufficient, you're not going to make a big dent. The only thing that will happen is that you might shift um, which countries are more involved in trading and doing business with each other. So one of the themes we, we've heard during the pandemic uh, has been, in part, uh, the issues around supply chain and, and bringing back production of certain items here into the U.S., using the U.S. as the example. You talk a little bit about that, but I guess there is, in the scope of the United States, there's you know, a level to which you can expect that to occur, but not, you know, a complete uh, retraction of what has developed over the last several decades, correct? No, I don't think so, because, um, again, you have to look at it from the perspective of uh, firms doing business and what benefits they get from global supply chains. Uh, often the reason that you need to have uh, a global supply chain or, or a foreign supply chain or a regional supply chain is that um, you have to be able to serve your customers uh, efficiently. You need to be somewhat close to them. And so, um, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that need will always uh, be there. Uh, and what has happened, I think, uh, is that we see changes in which countries become the focal point of global supply chains. For example, some recent events have suggested that focusing an entire uh, supply chain on, on one country, say say if a supply chain is too dependent on China or, or one particular uh, country, then that can be risky. But notice that what that would do is it would lead you to diversify your supply chain into other countries, which would increase 
a number of countries involved in global business, not the opposite. And also, you have to keep in mind that for most uh, reasonably sized businesses, the home market is just not large enough, uh, not large enough of a market. And so they just need uh, to serve foreign markets, and that will mean having global or perhaps even more commonly regional supply chains. When we talked with Howard Marks a couple of weeks ago, one of the things he mentioned, he, he brought up the uh, the symbolism of the pendulum in this process, talking about the difference between sheer profitability for companies and, and more of kind of the social impact and how companies are kind of going back and forth. And, and he correlated it into this realm of globalization that companies for a while may look at the profitability side of it, but then they're also going to look at, at kind of the social component as well. Do you see that as playing out as a component here when talking about how globalization will will move forward in the, in the years ahead? I would imagine so. I mean, I think it's encouraging that companies are being more serious about social responsibility. But I don't I guess I don't subscribe to the trade off between profits or social responsibility for for a few reasons. In the context of what we're discussing, you know, say companies that have pulled out of Russia uh, you know, uh, be, for moral reasons, right? And so that could that is, in many many cases, the socially responsible thing to do. Um, but you also have to keep in mind, and and this is uh, going beyond just the example of Russia, that sometimes it might be that the socially responsible thing to do is to serve foreign markets. For example, you have a a life saving medicine or a life-saving technology or a product or service that will significantly improve the quality of life of other people around the world, not only can that be consistent with making profits, but you are making the lives of other people uh, better, so to speak. And so I don't um, I don't quite see what the trade-off is. I think that you might get cases where, yes, in some cases, giving up a foreign market is the socially responsible thing to do just as much as the opposite would be true. Um, and also it's going to be true for some countries and not for others. And so uh, the, the calculus isn't as simple as, as, you know, one versus the other. Zeke, great to have you with us. Thank you very much for a few moments. All the best. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Ezekiel Hernandez, management professor at the Wharton school. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.